Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon and welcome to Spectrum. My name is Chase Yakubowski and I'll be the host of today's show. Today we present part two of our two interviews with Robert B., Professor Emeritus of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UC Berkeley. Dr. B. served as an engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Shell Oil, Shell Development, and Royal Dutch Shell. His work has taken him to more than 60 locations around the world. His engineering work has focused on marine environments. His research and teaching have focused on risk assessment and management of engineered systems. He is co-founder of the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management at UC Berkeley. In Part 2, Brad Swift asks Professor B. about the California Delta, Balancing Development and Environmental Conservation, and Shoreline Retreat. Is civil engineering misunderstood, or do people simply have a love-hate relationship with the built environment? I think a mixture of both. Civil engineering has been changing. So people's preconceived views, in many cases, are out of date. And it's also love-hate. When the built environment bites you, it hurts, and hurt encourages hate. There is a big reliance on it, though, at the same time as well. Yes. Airports, bridges, tunnels, water supply systems, sewage supply, large buildings, that's our game. We're out of Egypt and Rome. That's where we got our start. And now the new term is infrastructure. Yes. To sort of put all that together into one idea. Yes. Are there landscape scale projects out there that people should be aware of and cognizant of? Yes. That are underway or recently completed? Yes. One we've been watching carefully is location, the Netherlands, and it's what's called the water works. And the reason we zoom in on that closely is it's an excellent laboratory test bed for a comparable problem we face here in California with our California Delta infrastructure systems. Netherlands, much more compact, but it deals with an unforgiving test. That's the North Sea. And so they've been learning, actually, over a period of 3,000 years, how to work in a constructive, collaborative way with water. We face the same problem here at home. Often the tension associated with civil engineering projects is due to the tension between environmental degradation and economic gain. Is it possible to have balance when you're doing something on this kind of scale? answer is yes. And it's that term balance. Nature itself can be extremely destructive to itself. 
watch an intense storm attack a sensitive reef area in the ocean. The tension, and it can be constructive if it's properly managed, is we need to develop these systems, some of which need to make money. And at the same time, we need to ensure that what is being achieved there is not being degraded, destroyed by unintended consequences to the environment. One of the very good things that happened to civil engineering here at Berkeley is we changed our name. We're known as civil and environmental And that's to bring explicit this tension between built works, the natural works, and for God's sakes, remember, we have a planet that we've got to live on for a long time. As engineers, we are still learning how to deal with that tension. And particularly when something's on a really large scale, best of intentions going forward body of knowledge at the time you do the project, how do you know what the environmental impacts are going to be? Those unintended impacts reveal themselves. How do you walk these things back? How do you backtrack from having installed something on a landscape level? Excellent question. That's one of the reasons for my fascination with the Netherlands. By the way, I worked there for a year, compliments of a previous employer, known today as Royal Dutch Shell. So I was there learning how the Dutch had confronted flooding from the North Sea. And essentially, the approach was build a big dam wall between you and that water. You're on the dry side, and it's on the wet side. They promptly learned that was not good. They, in fact, heavily polluted areas that they were attempting to occupy, and suddenly a new thing started to show up in their thinking called give water room. So that today they have actually sacrificed areas back to the open ocean to give water the room that it needs to do what it needs to do. And in the end, the entire system has been improved. We've been trying to take some of those hard-won lessons back to our California Delta. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Brad Swift is interviewing Bob B., a civil and environmental engineer at UC Berkeley. In the next segment, they talk about the California Delta. We've talked about the Delta a bit. Do you want to expand on the challenges of the Delta and the downside? Well, I'll start with the downside. One of the things I used to say in class when I was still teaching here is terror is a fine instructor. Okay, So... The downside would be if we had what we'd call the ultimate catastrophe, 
and it's foreseeable and, in fact, predictable in our delta, we would be without an extremely important infrastructure system for a period of more than five years. That includes fresh water supply for small cities like Los Angeles and San Diego and small enterprises like the Central Valley Agricultural Enterprise. So the picture makes Katrina, New Orleans look like a play story. This is big-time serious. You'd say, okay, Bob, that's a pretty dismal picture. Why? And the answer is back to this risk creep. The Delta infrastructure systems started back in the gold rush days. And we want to have some agricultural land. So we built piles of dirt that I've called disrespectfully levees. And then we put in transportation, roadways, power supply, electrical power. And then we come up with the bright idea of transporting water from the north side of the Delta to the south side of the Delta so we can export the water to Southern California. Those people need water, too. Well, it's all defended by those same piles of dirt built back in the 1850s. It's got our gas storage under some of those islands, and our telecommunications goes through there. Our railroads go through there. So if you lose critical parts of those piles of dirt, you've got big problems. We can foresee it. We can, in fact, analyze predicted. We've, in fact, quantified the risks. They are clearly not acceptable. We've talked to the people who have political insight and power. They are interested to the point of understanding it. And then they turn and ask, well, how do you solve the problem? Well, at this point, we say, we don't know yet, but we do know it's going to take a long time to solve perhaps much like the Netherlands, 50, 100 years. And you can see immediately a blank because there's a two- to four-year time window. What's this 50 to 100 years? Uh, Can you tell me about tomorrow's problem and tomorrow's solutions? Answer, no, this one's not that. So we've run into a stone wall. So does it then become something that gets tacked on to all the other things that they want to do with the water because there's always a new peripheral canal being proposed, right? Right. And the north-south issue on water is not going away. It can't. So for some 50-year solution to happen in California politics, you'd have to have a pretty serious consensus north and south to the shared interests there. Correct. And there's no dialogue about that really? No. Within the state? No. How about within the civil engineering community within the state? No. Ah. So everyone wants to ignore the obvious threat to the the California economy because basically you're talking about – have you applied a cost to the uh, catastrophic event of the Delta failing? Oh, yeah. We thought in that direction. Katrina, New Orleans ultimately has cost the United States in excess of $100 U.S. dollars. Multiply that by five or ten, because of just the time extent, the population influence. So we're talking about hundreds of billions, trillion, 
of dollars. So the economic consequences of do nothing are horrible. And then you'd say, well, is it possible to fix it? The answer is yes. Well, do you know exactly how? No, we don't. That's going to take time to work through. It also takes, keyword you mentioned, collaboration. Different interests are involved, and we need to learn how to constructively and knowledgeably liberate those things to say, here's a solution that makes sense to the environmental conscience in the environment. Here's a sense or a solution that makes sense to the social, commercial, industrial complex. Hey, we might have a solution here. Let's start experimenting it. We don't have the basis for dialogue. And consequently, it slips back into our busy backgrounds, much like the San Pedro LPG tanks that are still sitting there. It's in the background, and the clock is ticking. And the Dutch model doesn't help them see how it could evolve? It doesn't seem to. They sort of have distanced the experience from the Netherlands and saying, well, we could never come to an agreement like that. Well, of course, as soon as you say that, that's the death of coming to an agreement like that. Well, maybe they don't see the the impending danger as existential as the Dutch do. I think that's very true. The Dutch can just walk outside of their homes, many of them, walk up one of those, quote, levees, and on the other side, they see what's happening. The North Sea is big and mean and ever-present, and they've got one common enemy, so to speak, and that's that ocean. And they've got to stop the flooding, but yet they can't damage the environment. So they've had to come to grips, one with themselves, one with the environment, and the long-term view. We could do it. We haven't. Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Brad Swift is with our guest, Professor Robert B. of UC Berkeley. In the next segment, they talk about shoreline retreat and regulation of oil and gas extraction. sea level rise and with storms becoming more volatile and surges from the oceans becoming real factors on shorelines, how should communities and nations approach the idea of retreating from the ocean? Well, again, thankful to our brothers and sisters in Europe, they're several decades ahead of us in asking and answering exactly that question. They've developed three strategies. They look at existing locations. They then examine each of the three strategies to see which makes long-term sense. The first strategy is fight. A good example would be United Kingdom, the Thames flood barrier. Yeah, you might like to move London, but you're not going to move it very quick, easily. And so the answer comes back, we need to defend. But you only defend what you can defend, which means you don't try and defend the entire coast of England. 
you defend small parts of it that can be adequately defended. That's a fight strategy. The next one is flight. I call it get out of Dodge City. And so they say we need to stage a strategic withdrawal so that we withdraw slowly, surrendering back to the environment, which needs to be surrendered back to the environment, and eventually we're gone. The next one is freeze. And what they mean is we'll occupy it until it's destroyed and then we're gone. As we looked at the coast of New York, New Jersey after Sandy, I wish we had done some of that thinking. I hope we do some of that thinking for our California Delta. I was thinking about civil engineering as it's applied in different parts of the world where a nation state is in a different stage of development. And how do you see civil engineering interacting in those three environments differently and taking in risk management and how it's applied? Well, I guess each society has to go through its own learning experiences. You can always look at another society and say, oh, they weren't very smart, or they certainly could have done it this way rather than the way they did it. So we fall into the the after-the-game quarterbacking sort of mode. Seems like each of these countries, societies, has to go through its own learning experience. As I said earlier, this risk assessment management business is one damn thing after another. And this learning transfer of insight forward seems to be as frustrating and difficult. So offshore oil, let's talk about the challenges inherent in that. What do you think about the debate about the risk? How should that debate be framed? The risks are higher, which means that likelihoods of failure that you engineer into the system have to be much lower, have to have backups and defense and depth and people who actually know what they're doing. The question is, will we, in fact, do it before we have a disaster? Don't tell me you think it's safe. Show me and demonstrate to me it is. That demand has not happened here in the U.S. yet. I'm very concerned for us. I think the government changed some of the permitting process. Is that window dressing? Or does it have some real impact on how people behave in the field? It uh, depends on um, geographically where you're at. Alaska has been very demanding at the Alaskan state level relative to oil and gas operations. And when you see a signature go on a permit, you can pretty well bet that there's sufficient documentation demonstration to justify that signature. Other parts of the U.S. are less diligent. And so it'll depend geographically where you're at and what you're dealing with. Well, it's not actually reasonable to expect to be able to appropriately regulate, govern an industry as powerful as the oil and gas industry with spotty governance. Governance needs to be consistent. And when a signature goes onto a form that says, yes, I have the ability to immediately abate the source of a blowout, 
you have the ability. The fire engine is built. It's in the station with trained people. Let's ring the bell and see if that fire engine can run. That hasn't happened yet. I remain personally very concerned for these ultra-high-risk operations we're considering in United States waters. Does the same spottiness occur with fracking in terms of the application of best practices? Everything I've been able to learn is yes. By the way, fracking has been underway for many decades. Industry actually had this kind of work underway intensely in the 1970s. It's this spottiness we're back to that becomes crucial. If the regulation governance, and that's both internal governance within the industry and external governance on behalf of the public, if it is demanding, insightful, and capable, we're okay. But if it's not, we're not okay. The system seems to have an interesting ability to slip to the lowest common denominator. By this point in my career, I've worked in 73 different countries. I've lived in 11 different countries. I've seen a company I have a lot of respect for at Shell operate internationally. Some areas gold standard, Norwegian sector, North Sea. And then I go to work with them in Angola. It's not a very good standard at all. And that's because the regulatory environment, both local and national, for Angola relative to oil and gas is very poor. So the system seems to adopt the lowest sort of common denominator it can. Strong industry requires strong governance to this man at the end of that experience. Bob B., thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Very much pleasure for that invitation. If you are interested in the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management, visit their website at ccrm.berkeley.edu. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes University. We have created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. Now a few science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Brad Swift joins me to present the calendar. Have you ever been interested in learning MATLAB? If so, this event is for you. Next Wednesday, December 4th, MathWorks is sponsoring a technical seminar. Some of the highlights include exploring the fundamentals of the language, writing programs to automate your workflow, and leveraging tools for efficient program development. This event will take place Wednesday, December 4th from 9 to 11 a.m. in 100 Lewis Hall on the UC Berkeley campus. Make sure to register online at mathworks.com. Click on Events. Research on mobile micro-robots has been ongoing for the last 20 years. But no micro-robots have ever matched the 40 body lengths per second speed of the common ant on our picnic tables and front lawns. 
Next week, University of Maryland mechanical engineering professor Sarah Bergbreiter will discuss the challenges behind microrobotic mobility, as well as mechanisms and motors they have designed to enable robot mobility at the insect size scale. The colloquium is open to all audiences and will take place on December 4th at 4 p.m. in 306 Soda Hall on the UC Berkeley campus. Every Thursday night, a new adventure unfolds at the California Academy of Sciences. December 5th, Cal Academy of Sciences presents its holiday-themed "Tis the Season" nightlife, featuring class acts such as Sly Girls and DJ set by Nathan Blazer of Geographer. Whether you're dancing underneath snow flurries in the piazza or enjoying the screening of "Back to the Moon for Good" in the planetarium, this nightlife will be one to remember. Tis the season will take place Thursday, December fifth, from six to ten p.m. at the California Academy of Sciences, located in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Remember, for this event, you must be twenty-one years or older. So make sure to bring your IDs for alcohol-enriched fun. For more information, go to calacademy.org. Is the future deterministic and unalterable, or can we shape our future? Marina Gorbis suggests the latter. Wednesday, December twelfth, Citrus at UC Berkeley is hosting a talk by Executive Director of the Institute of the Future, Marina Gorbis. Marina Gorbis's research focuses on how social production is changing the face of major industries. In this talk, she will discuss her research along with her insight to our society's future. The talk will take place Wednesday, December eleventh, from twelve p.m. to one p.m. in Satarjitai Hall, Banatow Auditorium on the UC Berkeley campus. And now, Brad Swift joins me for the news. UC Berkeley News Center reports the funding of a new institute to help scholars harness big data. The Berkeley Institute for Data Science, to be housed in the campus's central library building, is made possible by grants from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and the Sloan Foundation, which together pledged thirty-seven point eight million over five years to three universities: UC Berkeley. The University of Washington and New York University to foster collaboration in the area of data science. The goal is to accelerate the pace of scientific discovery, with implications for our understanding of the universe, climate and biodiversity research, seismology, neuroscience, human behavior, and many other areas. Saul Perlmutter, UC Berkeley professor of physics and Nobel laureate, will be the director of the campus's new institute. David Culler, chair of UC Berkeley's Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and one of the co-principal investigators on the data science grant, said, "Computing is not just a tool; it has become an integral part of the scientific process." Josh Greenberg, who directs the Sloan Foundation's Digital Information Technology Program, said, "This joint project will work to create examples at the three universities that demonstrate how an institution-wide commitment." To data scientists, can deliver dramatic gains in scientific productivity. NASA's newest Mars-bound mission, Maven, blasted off while faculty, students, and staff assembled at the Space Sciences Laboratory to watch their handiwork head to the red planet. More than half of the instruments aboard the spacecraft were built at UC Berkeley. After a ten-month trip, it will settle into Mars orbit in September 2014, where it will study the remains of the Martian atmosphere. Maven was designed to find out why Mars lost its atmosphere and water. Scientists believe that Mars once had an atmosphere, oceans, and rivers very similar to Earth. 
From its Martian orbit, the spacecraft will collect evidence to support or refute the reigning theory that the loss of its magnetic field allowed solar wind and solar storms to scour the atmosphere away, evaporating any water not frozen under the surface. The answer to this question will give planetary scientists a hint of what the future may bring for other planets, including Earth. during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. 